Welcome to A Northern Wine Odyssey with Paul Brady and Dan Belmont. This podcast is presented by Cork Report Media. Lots of good chat today, everything but the kitchen sink. We trade our go-to autumn libations, and Paul finds himself yearning for originality and innovation at today's wine bars. Let's go. Dan. Paul. Good morning, or morning from where I am. Good afternoon, sir. Uh, what you been up to? So we came back from our long kind of summer in the States at the beginning of this month, and it's just back to work. There's uh, always a lot of trade tastings during September and, and early October, uh, and so I've been pounding the pavement looking for, for the, the kind of new discoveries for goodwinegoodpeople.com. And um, from there, I also did a, a couple nights in Austria. I was guest of the Austrian wine board, essentially, and visited uh, their uh, lake region, which is, and I always uh, struggle to pronounce it, it's Neusiedersee, and it's a, it's a DAC, their version of an AVA. Uh, and they have a, a very large lake. It covers quite a bit of area, but it's not very deep at all. Isn't it only like three feet deep? Uh, I think at like when it's full, which is definitely not this year. Nothing, not not a single body of water in Europe is you know maxed out this summer. Uh, is about two meters deep, six feet at its deepest. Uh, but this summer, you could you could walk right across it without a doubt. Right. So I mean, how in that case, how does the water play into the viticulture? Yeah, so it's not so much of a temperature moderating body of water as it would be, you know, for for your New York regions, for your Finger Lakes, things like that. Uh, Instead, it definitely creates the conditions that are uh, optimal for noble rot, so for Botrytis. And so the region uh, originally and and still today, you know, banks itself uh, very heavily on its sweet wines. Um, and that's changing as, as consumer tastes change, but uh, there's some really, really incredible um, uh, botrytis-affected wines uh, produced. And then it, it does um, create unique weather patterns. Uh, and so the majority of your rainfall is actually on the opposite side of the lake from where we were. And there are some grapes grown over there too, but uh, these guys don't get a ton of rainfall. And so a lot of different grapes planted. The, the most popular one uh, on the red side is Weigelt. Uh, which I actually very much love. It's it reminds me a lot of Cabernet Franc and its versatility. We tasted sparkling Zweigelt. We tasted rosé of Zweigelt. We tasted red wines that are uh, just uh, clean stainless steel fermented. Then we had oaked ones, and then you have um, the more kind of Bordeaux blend styles where you're you're blending in Merlot and, and Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, and so you've got a lot um, within within a little um, you know within just the one variety. And, uh, and yeah, it was really fun. They they uh, run a very tight ship there. So we got in uh, one afternoon. We did two nights, left uh, on, on the third day in the afternoon, but met probably a couple dozen different producers, visited several wineries, tasted well, you know, into the hundreds of wines uh, in a really organized fashion. Uh, and, um, yeah, I think um, I think there's a lot of potential with these grapes. And so with these wines, and so we're going to uh, look to import uh, some into the U.K., uh, in the coming months, which is pretty cool. It's going to be a Good Wine, Good People's first import uh, venture. And uh, maybe you'll share a bottle with uh, the new king or the new prime minister. Have you, have you, have you all caught up for drinks yet with, uh, with uh, all your new um, country leaders? It was a big week. And yeah, I mean, the, the headlines uh, haven't really stopped. The, the economy is um, <laughs> a bit of a mess too. Uh, great, great opportunity for, for folks in the U.S. to come and visit because your, your dollar's never gone further ever. And so, uh, please, please come see me. Uh, yeah, you know, we've, we've got a King, um, which is odd, you know, um, I'm eligible for UK citizenship before I would have sung God save the queen. And now I'll have to sing God save the King. Uh, and don't worry, I'm, I'll, I'll keep my, my American citizenship as well. I will be a dual citizen like my daughter, which is cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. A lot going on in uh, your part of the world, but uh, a lot going on over here too. Mostly bad, uh, you know, is what it is. So everybody be well, stay, stay, uh, stay strong and smart and, and, and do what you can to get through these ver- various economic recessions and, and try to have a, a drink here and there to calm your nerves. That's the plan. Well, what have you been drinking? You know, I, I would say we're officially into fall now, um, mm-hmm. both in terms of the equinox, as well as just, the feeling, it can be quite hot in New York into September, but it has cooled off and we're kind of now seeing it in the 60s, more so than the 80s or 90s or 100s, which we saw over the summer. So like I've been enjoying beer 
mm. lately and just like other kind of fall cocktails that I like, what do you shift into this time of year? Yeah, for, for me, I mean, I, I'm, I'm leaning solidly into my, my red wine habits uh, and more fuller bodied Pinot Noirs are, are always welcome. Uh, big into the Cote de Rhone uh, and uh, Syrah. Uh, where you're going to get those really nice savory characteristics and just those uh, really kind of nice warming spice, spicy finishes. And so um, I went to some trade tastings on on Monday, and um, the first one was a USA tasting, a uh, great portfolio by Flint Flint Wines uh, importer. And you've got um, you know uh, Red Hook Winery is their their East Coast uh, stalwart. Uh, in the portfolio, they've got Red Hook, and then uh, otherwise everything else is California, a bit of uh, Oregon, like Christum, uh, Washington State. They've got um, Pursued by Bear, and um, what is the other one? Gosh, it's it's uh, there's an MS behind it. It's um, Gramercy Cellars. Ah, yes, Greg Harrington. Thank you. I couldn't come up with his name. Uh, yeah, so those are always lovely to taste. And then there's a, a bunch of California stuff. They've got uh, Rain, which is um, Carlo Mondavi, his um, Sonoma outfit, which is great. Um, and yeah, it tasted, it tasted some nice wines. Second one was mostly Burgundy, uh, which is always, always fun. You know, what, one of the things that we were chatting about with some, some friends at these tastings is, you know, I think there's a great opportunity for, you know, really high quality American Pinot Noir and Chardonnay moving forward because Burgundy has had such a rough go over the last couple of years uh, that in terms of availability and, and, you know, at this point, the prices are even, you know, uh, uh, looking pretty positive on the U S side. So I, I'd be uh, very happy to see more, more premium Pinot come over um, from, from all States. Do you find like among these, fall tastings and whatnot trade tastings and whatnot in london do you guys see any increase in cider like just in people showing cider or drinking cider what is the cider movement like in london yeah so the cider movement for me for you know from from my perspective here it reminds me of maybe where new york was before I left, you know, um, just really starting to look at cider in a way uh, that's similar to how you look at wine, you know, uh, where your different uh, apple varieties uh, are are important and you're not just, you know, um, getting blends. I mean, you know, British cider, the majority of it is, is sweet crap that comes out of a tap. Um, but you're starting to see these little uh, really, really high quality cider outfits pop up uh, where they are, are sourcing, uh, uh, you know, the real artisan stuff from around the UK and, and showing it in, in, again, that same vein that we would show fine wine. And so I'm all for it. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm surrounded by it here in the Hudson Valley. So it's, it's never been more present in my life. I mean, I, maybe, I don't know. I worked at some restaurants that had some pretty, uh, irresponsibly big cider programs. Um, you know, cider has struggled to take off as a category akin to wine or beer or cocktails. I mean, you do end up, you know, somebody orders a glass and then you might pour that bottle down the drain a few days later. Right. Um, if no one orders a second glass. So, um, but I'm, but that's changing. I, yeah. I finally, I think, I mean, I think, you know, everybody for years has been like, this is it finally going to be the year for cider. And then it's not. It could be just where I am. I mean, you know, surrounded by apples and cider up here in this part of the state. Um, but uh, I, I do see an active interest uh, in especially the stuff that's in cans. I mean, those fly off our shelves, yeah. the sort of, you know, a bit more basic, just six pack uh, or four pack of different um, variations, flavors, whatnot. And then in like, the more artisanal bottlings in 750s, those move a little bit slower, but they are popular to drink by the glass at the bar, but I don't see the bottles um, moving off the shelves. I don't see people necessarily taking them home. Right. I think I think figuring out that home application is tricky. Uh, I, I love the kind of large formats. I like them funky. I like them rustic. I like the, the Basque ciders and the Normandy ciders. You know, uh, I like that little hit of, of volatile acidity in those, those, uh, those drinks. And yeah, over here, you know, very few of the wine outfits also have cider, a few dabble. Uh, and so you really have to be in a position to kind of seek out these these really specific distributors uh, who are who are making these collections. When, when I was back in, in New York City working for Murray's Cheese, we had 
an amazing, amazing cider selection. Uh, I'd say one of the best in the city at the time. And, and a lot of that was due to the fact that we couldn't sell wine or spirits. And so we really focused and, and went in heavy on, on beer and cider, cider and cheese, phenomenal, phenomenal pairing. We would do cider and cheese classes once every other month. Uh, and so I, I had the, the, uh, the pleasure of, of tasting quite a bit of, of Northeast uh, uh, ciders and international ciders. And so um, I'd love to see, see more of them about, and I think it's a, a really excellent drink for fall weather. You can't beat it. Yeah. Uh, we, we just put on um, an apple brandy to onto the spirits shelf from a distillery called Dennings point, which is right in beacon and just actually a couple blocks from where we are. Um, and we're, we're using that uh, with uh, mixing with bourbon and it's sort of a apple brandy bourbon cocktail hitting all those fall flavors um added a couple uh did did quite a big um revamp to both the wines by the glass and cocktail list heavy with the fall flavors so there's you know there's like a for example that apple brandy cocktail which is um uh, you can think of it sort of as a variation on a manhattan um but with some more of those fall flavors uh, and we also got a, a, a series of Concord grape-based cocktails. We purchased Concord grapes from one of our one of uh, our colleagues, Emily, and her family farm called Quimby Farm over on um, on the west side of the river in Marlboro. And we pureed them, and we're using them in three different cocktails. We've got a Concord mimosa, a we're doing the Concord Crush, which was invented and made famous at Gramercy Tavern, which is a vodka and Concord puree on the rocks, a little bit of lime juice, super refreshing. Take down a number of those quite easily. And um, a Concord Whiskey Sour. So those have been fun. I mean, my gosh, our walls were covered in purple just from pureeing those grapes. Um, and fi- fi- finally, one of our one of our uh, friends, who's who's a chef, was like, "Why, why don't I take these home and do these for you? <laughs> That'd be great." Thanks, Brandon. All those cocktails, epic. I um, I'm a big fan of of you know my, I I grew up with Concord grapes and Concord grape juice, and it's uh, it's actually not something that um, really exists here in the UK. It's not even a, really a flavor profile that that the Brits uh, understand. It's such a great. It's such a useful flavor. I mean, you can do a lot with it. And then it's also like having the puree is great just for, you know, people who don't want to drink any alcohol. We just, you know, make on the fly Concord grape soda. And uh, it, it, it's, yeah, it's super fun. And um, added a couple um, like off dry whites to the by the glass list too. I'll be curious to see how those do. I mean, that's sort of what I like to drink this time of the year. So we've got, got a Bellwether Riesling on. 2016, the S Riesling. So we're down to our last, uh, our last bottles of those. So I think I'm just going to run those out by the glass and 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 say goodbye to to the Bellwether 2016 F Riesling. Phenomenally off dry, and drinking great. And uh, we've got the Anthony Road 2020 Vignole Gray Series Vignole on by the glass, which is an off dry Vignole, and that is an intense wine. Yeah, I think that little bit of residual sugar uh, goes a long way for mouthfeel, for for texture, for that kind of more mouth coating experience, which, uh, you know, as that, that uh, you know, the, the mercury starts to drop, I think goes a long way. And I don't know if people necessarily think of it that way. You know, you, you might want something more sweet and punchy when it's warmer, but actually... Uh, I think it's it's much more um, applicable this time of year for sure. Yeah, and you know, people people seem to have a, an appetite right now to to try grapes they've never heard of. So Vignol looks nice and foreign to most people on the list. Yeah, um, so it's good to have that by the glass. And uh, I gotta I, I gotta talk to you a little bit about this. Um, my first experience going to Mohonk Mountain House. Are you familiar? Uh, I've never been. I've heard of it, but uh, but I've not uh, visited. Okay, we got we got to touch on this. Um, it, it, it's it's one of these places that's like going back in time uh, in New York. Uh, it's, you know, sort of similar to visiting like Pleasant Valley Wine Company or Brotherhood or you know one of those big old wineries that that just uh, you know in many parts remain untouched. Uh, Mohonk Mountain House again, you know, goes back to the 19th century. This is uh, over in the New Paltz area of the Hudson Valley, and it's like the closest thing that I've ever been to. That's like if you think of the movie Dirty Dancing, you know, you can, you yeah. can kind of get the vibe. It's that old school resort. There, there is both a sort of main hotel or lodge or whatever. 
And then there are also like cottages throughout the property. Mm -hmm. You're you're up on a mountain, and this is very in the um, Schwagunk uh, Ridge, um, you know, famous for rock climbing uh, in the New Paltz Gardner area. And you know, amazing architecturally, and you know, from a landscaping perspective, just absolutely beautiful up there. There's a lake. There's um, and that TV show Billions. They filmed an episode there once and like one of the guys like lands like a, like one of the billionaires flies there from New York City and like a seaplane like takes off from the Hudson River and lands on the lake at Mohonk. And nice. so anyway, it's just it's just one of those big old school resorts that um, are sort of forgotten about the I mean, the, the most impressive thing about it is just the beauty of it all you know the the food is average you know the wine list is big you know we drank some bordeaux you know had some nice claret as you do in an old school dining room like that the dining room is massive i mean it seems to me like there's must be a hundred tables um and we were lucky i I should mention this was for my 40th birthday um we were lucky to have a table by the window and the the windows overlook you're looking like northwest and you're you're up on this mountain and you're looking at the valley and in the distance are the Catskills Mountains. This is the best view from a dining room that I, I have ever seen, second only to when I was a kid and was at the, the lodge on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. The view is just absolutely stunning. Uh, I can't think of another place um, that I've ever been to like this. So if you get, if you get a chance, go have dinner there. I mean, it's one of these things where like you, you, you pay to get onto the grounds and your dinner pass like allows you to like browse around. Like you can walk all over the place. There's a bar. I mean, outside is beautiful. And uh, it's just very old school. You know, it's like a three course appetizer, entree, dessert sort of vibe. And of course you, you pay for your booze. Um, and it's, it's kind of just a fun uh, excuse to get dressed get dressed up and go celebrate something. I dig it. And Kevin Israeli is primarily responsible for the wine list. Um, so yeah, that's pretty cool too. So that was uh, a fun excuse to, to go out and and drink a, drink a Santa Million. So I can't say I do all that often anymore. And, uh, and happy belated, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I I have not even, this is like these last couple days are like the first time coming up for air. I have not posted anything on Instagram or I still need to do that to say thank you to everyone for the, for the birthday wishes. And and uh, I guess this is a good way, uh, a good segue for the topic, which is sort of, you know, tasting versus drinking uh, to, mm-hmm. to simplify it a little bit. Uh, and there was another event that we went to, you know, the obligatory like week long 40th birthday shenanigans. We we started at the summer of Riesling prom, which is as ridiculous as it sounds. That's kind of what got me thinking of this. So we, we did it up big this summer, Summer of Riesling, went to both of the major events. The Earlier in the summer was the Summer of Riesling boat cruise, and I'll, I'll just bring listeners up to speed. Summer of Riesling is uh, Terroir Wine Bar's tribute to Riesling. All summer long, they run like 30 different Rieslings from all over the world by the glass at the bar, uh, peppered with events here and there. The boat cruise has been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, at least 10 plus years and I've been uh, on a number of them. And it's always one of the best just wine parties of the year. And I think we talked about that a little bit on a previous podcast. And, you know, I stand by it. It's still just a a, a wonderful and, and just sort of it's about the drinking, not the thinking kind, kind of event. And and that's what I want to get into today. And, and then the prom was, you know, Paul Greco is obsessed with 80s new wave it was exactly like what? What is? Is it Sixteen Candles? Is that the John Hughes movie where it's like yep. the, the big dance or whatever at the end? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a lot like that. The band was an '80s cover band called White Wedding, and they were <laughs> really, really, really good. Like just playing all that you know British '80s new wave stuff, American like hair band stuff. So it's like this combination of like Duran Duran and Van Halen and uh, Human League and Cyndi Lauper and, and just super fun stuff. Uh, and then like you know at least I can't remember it was probably upwards of ten different Rieslings available by the glass that everyone's drinking Riesling like it's beer or punch or something like that. So you're getting crunked on Riesling, and you know you have to remember that it's that it is wine, it is not beer. So the next day we were like, oh my god, we drank Riesling like it was beer. Anyway, really fun. 
of course, great Rieslings from, you know, producers like Prume and, and Weil and uh, Selbach and Herman Weimer and Brooks from Oregon and Pikes from Australia, just like, you know, the some of the top Rieslings from around the world. And it got me to thinking about how these types of parties are produced in comparison to other consumer wine events and trade wine events. And I think one of the major differences is that all the emphasis goes into, like I said earlier, sort of forgetting about the thinking and just drinking and having fun and not really necessarily talking about the wines. I mean, certainly there is some of that, but it's more just talking in general. And it, it reminded me of what Paul Greco tends to say when he gets put on panels, which he often does. And Paul Greco is the proprietor of Terror Wine Bar and the Summer of Riesling. And he's, I don't know, 50 something years old and has been doing this for a long time. And, and he loves to sort of prioritize hospitality over wine. I mean, everyone knows him and thinks of him as this famous wine guy, but he would tell you first and foremost that he views himself as a hospitality guy. And when, when, on the subject of wine list, which his is an extraordinarily well-known and unique wine list. It's both a large uh, selection of wines, but also has a ton of information. If you go and sit down at Terroir Wine Bar, and I suggest everyone does this, uh, you'll have a great time just by yourself reading that wine list. I mean, it's funny, it's informative, it's ridiculously over the top. And the bar, the whole bar is sort of decorated with pages from the wine list, which are sometimes like factually incredibly accurate. And then sometimes it's just uh, over the top, more to do with pop culture or politics or or whatever. And what Paul always gets back to is he'll, I, I can remember this lecture where he, you know, he has a glass of wine in, in his hand and he's pointing to the glass of wine. And he's saying, this doesn't matter. As in what's on your wine list doesn't matter. What matters is this, and, and he'll like, you know, talk with his hands, uh, making motions that are invoking conversation. What matters most is that you and I, you know, wine director, sommelier, server, whatever, and guest are having a conversation, whatever it is, could be about wine, could be about anything. And that that, you know, is the most important thing. And the work of the wine list is already done. You know, we don't really need to talk more about that. We just need to talk. and drink and carry on. And it strikes me as more obvious now as to why his lists are the way they are, full of all that information. Because it's like, sit down, read the list, learn the thing. And then it's like, that's over. We don't need to talk about structure or, you know, fruit salad, aromatic adjectives, or, you know, all this, all these classification laws or whatever it is, viticulture. Certainly we can talk about that, but it's more just about that we're talking at all. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, I think that, that the environment that you create is ultimately, you know, more important than, than, you know, the actual wine itself, because, you know, uh, your emotions play a part in how you taste, uh, you know, who you're with, where you are makes a big difference to your ability to appreciate what you're tasting. And, um, you know, I think, um, you know, there are wines that, you know, that might remind you of something that's very, um, visceral to you, maybe, um, you know, your fresh baked grandmother's cookies, right? And if you loved those cookies and you smell that in an oaked, uh, let's say, you know, uh, Chardonnay or something with, with a lot of baking spice, you might love that wine, right? If, if you uh, have a, a Bordeaux or, or, or you know, a, something from maybe St. Emion that reminds you of Uncle Johnny's cigar box, but, but Uncle Johnny was a creeper, you're not going to like that wine as much. Uh, and so at some point, you do have to get beyond the the technical elements of of the wine and create an environment that the wine doesn't have to work so hard right and um and yeah i think that's that's important i think um you know when, when i talk about the the brick and mortar that we're trying to develop it is a a place that makes wine easy to love right and uh and yeah i think that that that's huge i mean hospitality um if that's your game it, it has to come first Right. Yeah. And I, and I think what's sort of, you know, what's interesting about a list like 
terroir is uh, you, you know that the people that make that list happen are obviously very knowledgeable and that there's a lot of a lot of intention that goes into to creating these lists both to challenge themselves and to challenge guests but in the end the result being you know let's just let's just drink and and have a good time here well it also it also builds trust knowing that so much time and effort went into that list it takes a lot of the pressure off of the decision it also allows a person to look at the psalm and and have a trusting relationship with them that this person's not going to steer me wrong because there's so much work behind the scenes that goes into the list now with that said his particular list and and an establishment i almost always like to go to by myself because I just want to sit in the corner <laughs> and read the list. And, and so that, that might be, that might be like, and, 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 you know, the antithesis of what he's actually, of what you, you know, we were saying that he's, he's trying to do, but man, it's a good read. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it just got me to thinking about both, you know, what has been innovative and where we are right now. And, and I'm going to be a little bit of a curmudgeon here. I'm pretty disappointed in what I'm seeing out there lately in terms of innovation or more sort of lack thereof. Every store, every restaurant that I see opening is the same. Nothing has really changed. And I first, I just thought that the last couple of years would dictate that change is really kind of necessary. I mean, all these restaurants that struggled and had to sell off their, their wine cellars, uh, wine retail and, and retail in general remains strong. We, we, we kind of now know that like even a global pandemic's not going to slow down the sale of booze. Like people are gonna get their booze, um, one way or another. Right. But I did think that maybe the, the wine centric restaurants would start leaning in a different direction, perhaps favoring something that might be more sustainable for the long run. But I'm not really seeing that. All I'm seeing is the same kind of conceptual neighborhood style wine centric restaurants, whether they are, you know, all French, all Italian, all American, or lean natural, or sort of prestigious, whatever that may be. It's just the same thing, same stuff. Now, I, I think in wine retail, we are seeing some, some new things. There are, there's a shop, at least one, if not more, specializing in skin contact and orange wines, right? Um, there are certainly natural leaning shops. There are still shops like Chamber Street, which sort of um, have a really wide variety of classics and uh, new and exciting things. Wine retail seems to be strong and there seems to be a bit more innovation in that sector. Restaurants, I, I, I open up like the Eater Fall What's Hot list or whatever, or the New York Times, you know, Fall Restaurant Preview or whatever it was. And I just see kind of the same things over and over again. And coincidentally, uh, my fiance and I happened to go to one of, one of the new restaurants. I had a good experience at the restaurant, so there's no reason for me to not name it. It's called Cafe Spaghetti. It is in Brooklyn. It was reviewed by the Times with a glowing two-star review the same week that we happened to go. Total coincidence. I had not heard of the restaurant. Sierra found it. Uh, we met some friends, had a lovely dinner there. Great food, nice neighborhood spot. I wish it all the best. Maybe it'll do great. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But what I do know is that it's a restaurant like any other restaurant that a chef or restaurateur opens. Great food, great little neighborhood spot. How's it going to stay open? That's my big question. I, I just, you know, seeing the types of kind of very fine and, and wine-centric neighborhood restaurants that have come and gone over the years, this just looks and feels a lot like the same thing. And that's where I think we're going to get into trouble with the lack of innovation. What I want to, to see, and I'm not saying I'm in favor of this or this is the solution, but I would just like to see that it's happening. Like I want to open up one of these restaurant previews and see something that's like uh, David Chang, new restaurant, all robot cooks and robot bartenders, or like Paul Greco opens a new wine bar and there's no wine list. You just walk up to a corner and you order your wine out of a German wine vending machine. You know what I mean? Like I just want to see people trying things that are meant to sustain the, the, the life of you know said restaurant or bar uh, such that it didn't operate like that in the past you know new innovation that's going to cut costs keep labor down so that you can keep your spot open am i making sense 
I'll touch on a couple of things. You know, one, good hospitality at a wine-centric neighborhood spot is fairly universal, right? And and again, we're talking about creating an atmosphere where people are where 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 you get out of the way and let folks enjoy the wine and enjoy the food. And so I think when that model works, I think people are always keen to uh, carbon copy it, right? Uh, now, the next part is, is it depends on what's your end game. Are you trying to create a New York City institution that's going to be there for 30 years? That might be everybody's goal. I, I don't know. I'm the type of person that wants to you know, see a project succeed and then move on to something new. I'm also in the process of trying to be a disruptor in this industry and and create something that London has not seen before. And it does involve things like vending machines and maybe not robots, but, you know. And, and the only pitfall there is if it is gimmicky or if it is just even on trend, trends change, right? And they change often. So is, is being an innovator setting you up for longevity or is it setting you up to fade away when the new trend and the new fad comes about, right? And so I think you have to answer all of those questions for yourself as someone who is opening a business. But yeah, I, I hear you. I, I believe that the, you know if you look at the top 10, let's just call them wine bars in London, they all, they all feel very similar to me. And so, um, you know, we, we, me, I am trying to, uh, to shake things up. I don't want to give away all my secrets, but uh, we're, we're going to have a lot of fun with it. We're going to create an environment where uh, it's, it's easy to love wine. Well, and I think that you are doing something innovative. I mean, the, just from <clears throat> us sort of talking behind the scenes, you know, and knowing a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think you shouldn't be shy about talking about that because you're, you're, you're not only trying to do something you're actually doing something yeah the website is not like any other retail wine website in in the united kingdom and we're going to keep pushing that envelope i've had some really wonderful conversations over the last couple of days i'm going to start working with uh, creative firms uh to to kind of push this envelope and push the technology behind the site uh to to really like i said be a be a disruptor and and hopefully take a chunk out of this this you know uh, this industry that is largely recession proof and so um you know we're going to uh we're going to keep pushing that envelope to to see what we can get away with you know now is it going to be relevant in 10 years i don't know maybe not you know but but that's okay i just want a good run i want a good successful run i want to make a splash and i want to have fun while i do it because if I'm not having fun, then what's the point? Yeah, and you know what's not fun is the, the the regular restaurant life that we both came up in, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, like, because, I don't know, because why? Because the grind is cool? Like, I don't know. I think we all just sort of lied to ourselves for a lot of years and continue to lie to ourselves and each other. Anytime someone's like, you know, I really just want to open up my dream wine bar, you know, just a neighborhood spot with my favorite simple wines by the glass and, you know, a, a, some oysters and, and a really good uh, burger and, you know, a couple dessert. Like, and we all sort of be like, yeah, do that, do that. Like, that's your dream. Go for it. Like, we got to stop lying to each other. No, I, no one should be encouraging anyone to open up that concept right now because that concept was built on something that no longer exists, which was cheap rent and cheap labor. Yeah. And again, I'm I'm just sort of confused and disappointed in that no one has seemed to try anything that's going to sustain a, a, a business for whatever the length of desired time is. You know, I, whether that's 30 years or just a few years. It just worries me that a lot of money gets spent, a lot of time, a lot of, you know, passion and, and heartache go into these things. And the the end in sight just seems to be much too near by the way that everything continues to go. And I guess I'll just, you know, I mean, most of the, the listeners of this podcast know that I opened a shop and a bar. It's an all New York concept because that's the only way to do it in New York to have both a shop and a bar under the same roof. It's also the only way to have wine, beer, and spirits all in the same shop. Um, you know, it's a great, it's great to have a one-stop shop, but there is that caveat uh, in that everything is New York. And, you know, not everybody believes that New York makes great 
wine or beer or whatever. I think they're all exciting categories and, and little by little people are becoming more and more open-minded to these things every day and people are starting to treat us more and more often like their regular shop, whether it's that bottle of vodka that they grab once every couple of weeks or um, you know the, a, a new under $20 wine that they're getting once a week or twice a week. And I'm seeing this happen and I'm sort of uh, allowing myself every once in a while to pat myself on the back and say, okay, it's maybe this, maybe this is going to work. Uh, and I would have never opened it if I couldn't have a retail concept, because as we've established, retail seems to be the, you know, bulletproof sector of this industry. And I was actually, I got to talk to John Dyson the other day, who's the owner of Millbrook Winery and was the commissioner of agriculture of New York state when the famous farm winery legislation went uh, into being in the 19, late 1970s. And there's this perk of it that, you know, someone like you or me or uh, a restaurateur or uh, entrepreneur could team up with an already existing uh, vineyard or winery and open a, a satellite tasting room and shop based on uh, cooperating on the license together. And I asked Mr. Dyson if why if he was surprised that this doesn't happen more often right like christopher bates is doing that up in the finger lakes you know i we opened um just last year here in the hudson valley there's one or two places in new york city that are primarily urban wineries but are doing a little bit of uh you know selling selling other people's uh products um but at large there's there's really nowhere near uh any sort of visible presence of this concept uh and when I asked um, Dyson about this, he said, I am surprised that there's not more of that going on. And this has been a perk since the very beginning of the legislation, he confirmed. Mm. So it just seems to me like now is the time with you know New York as a category being uh, of interest to more people than ever, quality being higher than it's ever been across really all the genres, wine, beer, cider, spirits, and there being more of an interest in local and regional, whether that's for um, whatever responsible reason you want to list. And so I hope we see a little bit more of that. And I'm available to anybody who wants to talk more about how you go into something like this. I'm happy to answer questions, have a dialogue, uh, you know, DM me uh, on Instagram if you want, or email me, paul at paulbradywine.com. And I'm sure that there are more ways that we can innovate and not just uh, do the same old, same old. And I want to just encourage this conversation uh, to keep going. What, what other ideas do you have? I'm spoiled here in the United Kingdom. It's one license. If you have a restaurant, you can sell by the bottle. You can sell takeaway. You can put a lid on it and send folks out to the street. There's no open container laws here. And so we're really quite lucky in what we can, we can get away with. And so my model, uh, definitely leans on retail for the same reason that that yours does you know is is being a bit more uh, uh kind of recession proof and then um on the other end you know being able to serve uh on premise uh where the same place you could be the takeaways is really important you know a customer of mine uh she um shops through the website and you know she said i've always been a supermarket wine drinker and then uh, I went to an event and, and they ruined me. I, I just I just enjoyed the wine so much. Now I can't go back to the supermarket stuff. And and for for me, for you, we have or you know I want and you have the venue to ruin people, right? And then you can also be their supplier of of their fix, right? And I think that's that's a huge opportunity. That you're right is is very surprising that that more people don't take advantage of it. And I think one of the reasons is is people just want to have a little bit of everything and they don't want to be pigeonholed to just New York or, or whatever. And I think uh, they think that, you know, the old school model of, of having multiple distributors and, and uh, you know, and, and having a very eclectic lists is a value, but sometimes it's just good to do one thing right. You know, you know, for me, uh, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not doing table service. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to have servers. I'm not going to have, have menus at the table. Uh, it's going to be pub style service. You're going to come up, you're going to have a chat with your bartender. You're going to, uh, you're going to get your glass of wine. You can go sit wherever you like, pay for it before you sit down, you finish it. You don't want anything else. You can leave. It's that simple, you know, whereas every majority of wine bar concepts here in, in London right now, you have to sit, you have to be seated. You have to 
get get your menu. You have to look at the menu. You have to order your drinks. You have to order your snacks. You have to wait for the the, the waiter to come back and and order another one. You have to then get asked if you want dessert. You have to then wait for the check. You've got to wait for the card machine. It goes on and on and on and on and on, and it becomes this process that you can't just go in and enjoy wine, right? And so, um, and so for me, that's also a, a huge uh, uh, benefit to your your staff costs, right? We're going to be able to run this shop with a small, tight crew of knowledgeable wine people, right? And um, I think it's going to make all the difference uh, for for our bottom line, really. And then from a food perspective, I am talking vending machine. I want a, I want a high-end artisan cheese vending machine. Very, um, you know, excited about that, that concept uh, where we can, you know, suggest pairings and you can um, get little accoutrements with your 100-gram wedge of cheese that, that, you know, pops right out and grab yourself a bit of cutlery and sit down and have a little picnic. I mean, I, I think we're, we're going we're gonna to have a lot of fun with it. I love that. I have a question. Since you are allowed to sell bottles to go, any restaurant can also be a shop in London. Do they all do that? Not all of them. I, I think it depends on on what you want to focus on. You, know, you think of it like a corkage, right? Uh, most shops will have a retail price on the bottle, but if you want to sit at the table and enjoy it and drink it in, you're going to add uh, what I'm seeing most commonly is 12 pounds for a drink in service. Um, and I don't plan on charging people 12 pounds for that, that ability to do that. But um, it, it is um, common for anywhere from eight to 12 pounds uh, uh, for, for drinking drink bottles compared to their retail prices. And it's just an increase in the, in the, the profit margin there. And what was it? We went to a wine. Didn't we go to the Laughing Man? Was that the la- That's the one we had dinner, right? With Christina and Pascaline? Uh, with Christina and Pascaline, we went to the Laughing Heart. Laughing Heart. Okay. Yes, it was de- it was definitely the laughing heart because I met you. We were at Sager and Wild down the block, and they're on the same street. That's it. Yeah, Sager and Wild. Yeah, that was another. okay. Do they sell re- like retail bottles? Uh, yes, more so. It depends on their space. The first, the one where we were in is a pretty tight spot. I don't think they do a lot of takeaway. Um, he has another concept called Fair. Uh, which does pizzas and pastas. It's an exceptional uh, spot. And you walk in and you you walk through, you know, a, a few um, uh, shelves of bottles with takeaway prices on them where you could do your shopping right there. The the hostess desk has your, uh, your point of sale. You tap and you could leave. It's that easy. Uh, you can then or go in, taste something at the bar and say, I love that. I want to take it away. And you're going to pay significantly less for it as a takeaway bottle than you did when it was on the menu. Laughing Heart, absolutely. Their, their cave is available as a retail shop at any point. Yeah, if, you, if you're small and you're tight on space, it, it makes a lot of sense to, to diversify the model that way. Um, you know, if you're trying to be a Michelin star, no, you're probably not going to sell your bottles for takeaway. You know, it doesn't doesn't make sense to do that. But uh, I think on the, the, the smaller neighborhood hood size uh, venues? Absolutely. What do you think, do you have any, do you ever think about this in terms of other cities, you know? So, I mean, it's hard because laws are different from place to place, but what, you know, you visit New York annually, at least, what, what would you like to see happen in New York City and, and throughout the state even? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the other the other thing that is is you guys are still stuck with that three tier system, where you can't import, uh, you know, it can't be an importer, distributor, and then retailer. Whereas there's no distinction. I will I will be all three of those things by by year end, uh, and um, you know, there's a couple different licenses you need, but you can hold them all, uh, and you are you know when when I import wines for for example, if I got from Austria, my retail site will have a better margin on it. My bar will have an even better margin on it because you're, you're drinking in. And if uh, a buddy of mine who's a Somme down the road comes in, tastes it, loves it, I can sell that business a case, no questions asked. And so, uh, you know, little archaic things like that. Um, and, and didn't the, didn't the TTB or, or whatever, whatever trade organization you guys have, didn't they do a study very recently that suggested they scrap it? I Did don't you see know. That I, I no. I'm. I can't say I saw that one. Um, but it certainly hasn't been been implemented. But but it was you know a recommendation that the industry is is hampered by uh, the, the 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 separation of these three tiers. Yeah, you know, I'm just in in considering that and and you know who's doing some new things like 
there's a fair bit of talk about how expensive it is to drink wines by the glass. Uh, I don't know if if you see that in London as well, but I was in, in, in a couple trips down to the city over the last few weeks have noticed that wines by the glass. I mean, it is not at all uncommon to see wines in the twenty to thirty dollars per glass range. Now, usually, if it's twenty to thirty dollars, you're usually drinking some sort of prestigious Burgundy or, but it, honestly, it could be California, it could be Oregon. It could be a $20 glass of very high-end Riesling from New York. I mean, and these are, these are nice places that, that can command these, these types of prices, but uh, it, it does, it does seem that wines by the glass are very often starting around 16, 17, 18 bucks on lists in New York city and cocktails can be less expensive. So, I mean, you can get a, you can get a, you know, a, a Negroni or a, another a Manhattan or whatever, you know, for 14 bucks or, may, or may, maybe less. And, and it doesn't surprise me that the, the cocktail bar movement seems to, and the spirit and spirits and, and just, you know, bartending really seems to still kind of have an edge over over the kind of sommelier driven uh wine by the glass list i think it comes down i mean if i'm just thinking very practically it comes down to wastage right wine is significantly more perishable than spirits are right you can't uh, unless you're doing key kegs right you're not you're not batching wines the way that you could batch a cocktail and that cocktail until you add its fresh ingredients is shelf stable still right and so i think that your your by the glass prices are going to be mitigating for some of that wastage and then even if you think about the technology that we have now to preserve wine namely a corvin let's say you know that that gas those capsules are not cheap you know and so i wouldn't be surprised if you know restaurateurs are build or bar bar managers are building that cost uh, line into those by the glass prices as well and at that point if we're talking over $20 a glass, you know, that is, I would hope a experience that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get, right? Your price point for the bottle is insurmountable for most people. Whereas if you wanted to splurge a 20 to $30 glass once, maybe easier than a $180 bottle. Right. And so I don't know if those numbers actually work out, but you, you get the point. Yeah. And, you know, on the subject of waste, uh, I was reading uh, the review uh, that came out recently of Chambers, which is uh, Pascaline's new restaurant that used to be Racine. Uh, got, a, got, a, got a glowing two star review. So congrats to them. And, you know, no doubt there's a, I don't know, somewhat sizable wines by the glass list. I haven't made it in yet. Um, but, you know, Pete Wells was very complimentary as to the wine list in terms of there being offers for, you know, offerings of, for $50, $60, uh, you know, good, good bottle prices. And I'm sure the glass prices are fair too. What makes me a little bit nervous about this spot, but is also smart on, on the other hand, is they're only open five days a week. Now, I like that because that's, that's good for scheduling, right? Restaurant schedules are tough. When you're only open five days a week, close Sunday, Monday, or Monday, Tuesday, whatever it is, you know you have two days off in a row. That's great because that doesn't always happen when you work in restaurants as a server or manager sure. or whatever, cook. Um, so I applaud them for that. They're open five days a week. Everyone gets two days off. Everybody has a sem some semblance of a life uh, outside of work. Cool. Now, like you said, though, when you are closed for two days, what do you do with those open bottles of wine on Sunday night? Yeah, Though, I, mean, but, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're inevitably going to have some waste. And I know that because when we opened, we were closed two days a week too. We were closed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And I gave a lot of wine away for cooking and, uh, yep. you know, poured a lot down the drain. So, so that makes me a little bit nervous. Um, I don't know if I, on the one hand, I do like the five day a week work week. Sure. Yeah. Waste will, will sort of always be a problem. 
in in looking at the planning for for my um, kind of uh, operation expenses, uh, a good friend of mine who runs a multi-site group of wine bars here that I, I worked with uh, called called Beedales, Beedales of uh, based in Borough Market, and they have a few others. Uh, and I was with them for many years, and then left at the pandemic to create Good Wine, Good People. And I still consider um, Jamie a mentor and a friend. And uh, he said, you know, when you're looking at the road, he's like, if you don't like figure out how to do it with as little time as possible and then add time to the rota if it warrants it because it'll always look better to add a sixth day than to remove your sixth day, right? It'll always be easier to add service than, than deduct service. And from an optics perspective, that makes a ton of sense to me too. Um, you know, and there we would, uh, we would, we were open seven days a week at, at, uh, I'd say three out of four of the venues were open seven days a week. And so for us, you know, a vacuum in, uh, overnight will, will bridge the gap. And the, you know, it was a high volume enough that it was moving. Uh, and then everything else that we were concerned about, we did buy a Corvin, but like I said, those costs for that, that Corvin supply adds up to. Yeah. That, that is something that I have not, uh, tried out yet, uh, at the bar using the Corvin at all. I mean, it's when we got into our busy summer season, I, I was, we were no longer wasting any wine. Um, so that, that has been good. And the fall, the, good. the fall stays busy up here too. Not to say I would never use a Corvin, but, um, haven't done that yet. No, the other thing I want to sort of touch on, and maybe we can sort of end on this, and and this could be a, a deeper discussion because it, it has been one that I'd like to, to 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 go down the rabbit hole a bit on is this concept of an uh, an industry bar or a restaurant. You know, when mm. if you open a bar or a restaurant mm. and the majority of your clientele are other others who work in the industry. That sort of frightens me a little bit when I when I hear some something is an industry spot, I just and Pete Wells pointed that out about the chain in the, in his review of Chambers. And again, I'm not I'm not saying this because I predict Chambers will collapse at some point. Quite the opposite, I think they're about to get Michelin recognition, uh, and, and I do think that uh, you know I myself it's on my short list of places to get to. So you know I wish them the best, but. But he did. Wells did mention in his review that all the other, many of the other tables were on whatever night were full of other sommeliers, distributors, importers, writers. A big following of of the restaurant that he recognized was part of the industry, and that makes me nervous because that only lasts for so long, and then another hot spot opens up, and they move on to there. And right. I can just think of a number of industry heavy spots that have closed because the industry can't sustain a restaurant by itself. You need the masses of people. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and I think that's that's a pitfall because, you know, me, especially since I've moved here, the majority of my friends and my social circles are within the trade, right? And so therefore, I want to create a place that my friends will enjoy. And you could end up pushing that into a place where you are now an industry, you know, an industry bar, right? And so you have to really tread that line of of appeasing the the I don't know what you want to call them intellectuals when it comes to wine service and that kind of thing but also again just a friendly place that anybody can come in and enjoy uh enjoy a glass and so uh I I hear you on that for for sure um you know for me I think what, what I ultimately decided is is I don't want to stay open late enough <laughs> to support the trade and uh you know then you're always looking to add on that Sunday or Monday. And if it's only a good day because a couple of trade people are coming in, uh, then it's, it's not worth it. Right. Your, your Tuesday through Saturday schedule is, is going to be much more fruitful, uh, for you in the long run. And so it's the kind of thing you, you want to try it out and add on that Monday night and you open at 5 PM and you're only open till 10 or 11. And then, you know, uh, you try it like that. Yeah, sure. You can do that. Or you just do an industry night event and, and you bring everybody together a couple times a year and, and that's enough. And so that's the way I'm thinking about it at the moment. Cool. Well, that's, that seems like a pretty good place to, to pause until next time. Uh, anything to plug before we go? 
Yeah, I mean, if you, if you don't mind, quick, quick, shameless plug. Um, in uh, third week of August, the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, NewYorkWines.org, uh, released the new version of the New York Wine Reference Guide, and I'm uh, happy to say that I wrote it. And um, it was uh, about a year long project, um, and I also got to work with it, uh, work on it with my wife, uh, who is an editor by trade. I learned a lot in the process. Um, uh, and and teamed up with some some really wonderful people in the New York wine industry to uh, help it get get over the line uh, in terms of the the, the mountains of, of facts and information for us to share. Uh, the Wine and Grape Foundation did a wonderful job of designing it, the final the final product, and uh, I think it's something we're really proud of Com- compared to the previous version. Um, I I think um, we are we are definitely moving in the right direction. Uh, and we're going to continue to update it periodically and, and continue to enhance uh, the curriculum that goes along with it that we've yet to release. And so um, uh, check it out. Go to NewYorkWines.org. If you click on the Regions tab at the top, uh, the guide is, uh, is front and center for you to, to download. And um, it's readable cover to cover, which uh, is something that I couldn't say for the, the, its predecessor. It is, um, it's good for uh, both folks in the industry uh, and not, and it's friendly in that regard. There is some, some you know, very detailed information. Uh, it profiles over 60 grape varieties. We're, we had a lot of fun doing it, and so I encourage you to check that out. There's more to come. I think it, it still needs a lot of love. It still needs uh, some up-to-date vineyard data. Uh, the last time there was a proper vineyard survey in um the, in New York State was really 2011, and so uh, we're hurting for some up-to-date numbers. Uh, we've made some inferences. I try not to uh, to to take uh, guesses throughout the guide, but we had to put in a disclaimer to say uh, we are hard to keep up with, right? You know, um, and and so we're we're really uh, desperate for for that that data to come out, and um, we'll get there. We'll get there. So check it out, NewYorkWines.org, uh, and uh, yeah, I hope you like it. Definitely, I will definitely check that out. Um, cool. Uh, well, one, uh, one little last, uh, uh, mention it is harvest, um, certainly in, in Ooh, yeah. our part of the world and one, one, uh, new wine that we've got, uh, fermenting away is going to be a skin contact, uh, dry skin contact wine made from the Delaware grape that, uh, Peter mm-hmm. B. Craft at Anthony road, uh, is overseeing that fermentation as we speak. So, um, I'm pretty, Brilliant. pretty great winemaker. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm so excited. The grapes came from uh, John Wagner. So I, I'm very, uh, I like the Delaware grape a lot. I, I you know, what Nathan Kendall and, and Pascal Peltier have done with their sparkling dry Delaware. Uh, that's been a favorite wine of mine for, for a little while now. Um, Aaron McMurrow over at Lakewood um, made a, a traditional method sparkling Delaware with her husband, Dave, who was the grape grower there. And I was uh, privileged to taste a bottle of that. It has not been dosed with any, uh, dosage yet and they're still figuring out what they were going to do so it was kind of a neat uh facsimile uh of of, uh, of another sparkling delaware and um i i would never say that we will be the first to make a skin contact delaware because you know anytime you say that it turns out someone did it before you but uh i'm certainly uh excited to see what the intense aromatic sort of muscat like character of of these grapes ends up being with uh, in skin contact form so it's uh, what i'm looking forward to over here that's super cool and and how just just out of curiosity what's what's the buzz is are we are we shaping up for a good a good vintage is everyone happy with with the harvest conditions at, at the moment you're, you're a little more keyed in there than i am mixed um i can speak for the hudson valley where it was hot and dry all summer i mean there was like it, it was a problem um, there were there were wildfires here for the for the first time in a while. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, some of the waterfalls were barely a trickle. Um, you know that, like if you hike out to um, some of the some of the state parks, um, you know you, you definitely you definitely felt the effects of of climate change and of this drought that we experienced. But uh, that's not all so bad for the grapes. You know, the grapes like a little bit of stress and they like hot dry conditions for the most part. I think the growers here would have liked a a, a little more rain. Um, but, uh, uh, we're looking good in the Hudson Valley, the Finger Lakes, it was hot and dry all summer. And then, and then they got a good bit of rain in September. Um, that was probably a little more than the growers and winemakers would have liked. What I was getting was, was, you know, yields were, yields are a little down because of the drought, but generally concentration is going to be there for what they do get as long as they are bringing in clean fruit. Yeah. Yields are down both from, um, from the vintage as well as just the, uh, some winter damage, uh, going in 
yep. into the vintage. So there's uh, going to be a little bit less Pinot Noir uh, this year for sure. Uh, and then depending on your site, some of those other grapes that um, you know need the perfect winter to survive Merlots, Gewürztraminers, things like that could be a bit down, but uh, not not the most challenging vintage um, that I've ever heard about. Um, but uh, certainly not not a perfect. Uh, Goldilocks vintage either, and then uh, uh, Long Island. I, I'm not sure how they finished up if they got hit with any um, hit hard by any rain as of as of recent. So I'll have to check in with someone down there. Oh yeah, I'll check in with some folks. Maybe kick off with that uh, next week. All right, be well, and uh, thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, thanks as always to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com. Dan, talk to you soon. Thanks, brother. This is a Northern Wine Odyssey, presented by Cork Report Media. We'll catch you on the flip side.